0: Hey, it's Chris, the Supply Chain Doctor and host of Supply Chain is Boring, bringing insight into the history of supply chain management and exposing you to some of the industry's thought leaders and driving forces. In part two of this two-part series, we sat down with warehouse technology industry veteran Bruce Welty to learn about his vision of warehouse automation, autonomous mobile robots, and more of Paradox. It all sounds pretty boring. So let's see if Bruce can prove me wrong.
1: I don't know how much stuff you order online, but I find myself disappointed more often than not with the the way the deliveries come in. You know, Amazon's still the best at it, it's clear. Even though I don't order from them, whenever I do, I'm happy, or at least happier than anyone else.
0: Yeah, I'm gonna throw back a little bit. One of my new learnings for me was containers you talked about that you briefly mentioned containers having a significant impact on e-commerce i always think about that it was 1956 not much to do with you or locust but 1956 when the first commercial container sailed in the u.s it was malcolm McLean. i'll just throw that out there i i love telling people about that story so i think that had a big impact on a lot of things that we're dealing with today along with with the bar yeah
1: i mean look at it if you think about supply chain you know it's such a big industry. It involves, you know, airplanes and trains and automobiles and trucks and roads and rails and the ocean and it's like a third of our of the global GNP is involved in moving stuff around. You'd think that there'd be some pretty big opportunities in there and that's why, you know, five of the top ten richest people in the world made all their money in, you know, logistics. So, you know, I, I also then get tremendously frustrated when I think about how few opportunities there are in supply chain and what it takes to get things, to make things change. People refer to it as, you know, turning a big ship around. It just takes forever. And I think we have tremendous opportunities in the world of supply chain. But I think of all the things that have to align to make them possible and you know, it's gonna be another 10 to 20 year effort. I do think robots and specifically autonomous mobile robots, which is what Locus is, which is not what Kiva is by the way. Um, Kiva brings the product to you. So it's called a goods to person system. A Locus is actually a robot that goes to the pick location and waits for a human. We call that the opposite person to goods. And the, the robot and the human rendezvous at the place and the human does the pick. So I still think we're a long way from having picking arms and hands be able to deal with the variety and complexity of picking any item off of any shelf and putting it in a specific place. That's hard to do. But I do think AMRs are going to change the way things are done for a long, long time. And there's a big runway in front of AMRs as a, you know, as a, as a tool, is it gonna be as big as barcoding or containers? I don't know, but I do think it's gonna be big because it has all the elements of what makes something big, you know? It's the same thing, everybody does the same thing. The problems are similar, everybody can use it. It uh, saves money, improves throughput. It's something people need, They, they can't live without it. Labor costs go up, you can't find people, people don't aspire to do these jobs. It just has all the elements of a, of a good business. But in order for the, the next big leap, I think, which is where we don't need people in the warehouse at all, we need to address the problem further upstream. We can't deal with you know, products being shipped the way they are today. It's too much variety. There's no commonality. There's no way for a machine to consistently pick up an item. And I think if we could fix that at manufacturing, where all items come into in a specific type of container or a container that has a particular, recognizable, graspable element that you know a, a, a robot could pick up easily and reliably, we might see a big jump there. But until then, it's just going to be very, very hard for us to have a reliable robot that can pick up something as small as a guitar pick or something is you know, the shape of a a ball or uh, something that has holes in it.
0: Yeah, there's investment it, being made in, made in that space. I was at Modex this year, earlier, and there seems to be robotics companies that, you know, have the arms that reach out into totes and those types of things. I don't know if they're for packing or for picking, but that seems to be kind of the next evolution.
1: Yeah, but it's just a really, really hard problem to solve, mm-hmm. and... I'd like to think I'm optimistic in general, but I'm not too optimistic about that. You know, it's just a very hard problem for robots to do. There's a law I learned called Moravec's law, which says robots are good at doing things people are not good at and vice versa. So whenever I think about trying to solve a problem with robots, I always apply that law and say, is this something a human can do better? You know, I think robots aren't the perfect solution for, you know, every problem there are lots of machines that are better at it that are that are not robotic and sometimes just people people are better at it
0: some of the research i've done on you bruce it seems to be there's a cross depending on the, the the audience you're presenting to there's a discussion around the the robot versus human interaction and kind of it's more of a of a social impact what are what a robot's going to be doing to the employee, you know the workforce those types of things and i know right now logistics there's a there's a labor shortage. I think that's part of what's driving this this change. But do you get involved in that space at all, like trying to defend uh, the use of robots, or I don't want to say get into arguments, but you know some people can be pretty opposed to automation.
1: Yeah, I had um, I had a I got interviewed by Steve Croft on 60 Minutes, and I think he asked me at least 20 times how many people I displaced with every robot I bought, and I kept trying to avoid answering the question and. He persisted and persisted, and ultimately told them an answer, and that was the one thing they put on 60 Minutes. And then I was once on—I think it was Fox News, business, Fox Business—and they put up a picture of uh, striking workers as part of the lead-in to the story. And I was like, "Oh, thanks, guys." Sometimes I think I'm gonna—my tombstone's gonna say, you know, Bruce Wealthy, Job Killer," but I don't really look at it that way. First of all. When you ask people to think in terms of efficiency and cost savings, you can't constrain them and say, try to be efficient in cost saving, but, but don't attack one particular aspect of cost saving, like don't go toward labor. The other thing I, is, I, and I just generally don't genuinely don't feel bad about this, is that these are not the kinds of jobs that are good for people, good for America or good for any country really, to have people that are skilled in this. It's a very, very challenging job. And um it's very boring work, so we're trying to make better jobs for these people, and we're trying to make them more efficient and um, give them other other opportunities so it's too big of, it's a too big of a topic for me to kind of address because we're just one cog in the wheel of commerce, and we're trying to be as efficient as we can as that cog and over the course of the year of the centuries, it seems like we've done a lot of this sort of efficiency gaining, and it has resulted in loss of jobs. Like, you know, when was the last time you went into a bank teller to withdraw money? You know, is that something that the guy who invented the ATM was worried about and thinking about? It was the problem he was asked to solve. So we try to do it in the best way we can. We have created a lot of new jobs, too, so I feel good about that. And net-net, we've created a lot more jobs than than we've hurt and we've lost. But I think in the world of efficiency gains, you just have to realign. And, and this is making, this is the, you know, looking at the whole as opposed to each of the parts.
0: One of the things I, I think I heard you say in another interview was, you know, the, the invention of what was the bulldozer or the backhoe wasn't, it, it had a great productivity, but it didn't really put a lot of people out of work. You know, it's, it's using a shovel, using a backhoe, which would you prefer to do, right? So that's kind of the, the concept.
1: Well, of, I always say that if, if if creating jobs was your main goal here, if that was, you know, all that you cared about, then just get rid of backhoes and bulldozers and we'd be fully employed, you know? But the people that don't have jobs, you'd say to them, here, here's a shovel, go dig that hole. That wouldn't be rewarding for them. It wouldn't be something they'd aspire to do. They'd much be much more interested in learning how to run the bulldozer. I don't know. It's, again, it's a big topic. I can see all sides of it sure but my job is to get those products out the door
0: so you're at the forefront of another great industry i think i mean especially given the covid what's happening in today's environment social distancing obviously labor supply is constrained i'm seeing a it's almost an, an arms race bruce for robotics you know there's a there's companies probably in your neck of the woods so your competitors and one here in atlanta seems like there's a lot of people out there trying to to go after that maybe, uh, is it the first first to market or what do you think the the state of the industry right now, robotics?
1: Yeah, I mean, when we started, we were one of the only ones. I mean, there were a couple others, obviously the ones I visited around the globe, maybe a half a dozen or a dozen of them. Now I hear there's 120 companies in the space. I think that's inevitable. I mean, this is the weird thing about business in general is you never get a market all to yourself. And if you could get the market to yourself, then it's probably not a very good market. So we have competitors, and competitors are going to make us better, and we're going to make them better, and we're going to take costs out, and ultimately the customer wins. Um, I think it's fair to say Locus is, is the leader. I think every study I see says we have more sites and more customers, and we've done more picks than anybody. I know there's some pretty big ones out of China it's a little muddy. The industry hasn't really clearly delineated yet, you know, who's what kind of a robot. And so it's not always apples to apples. You know, Amazon installed, I think, over a quarter million Kiva robots. And so they're still dominating by a long shot. You know, they probably pick 250 million picks a week. But I think it's just indicative of how big an opportunity it is. And you know, very pleased and proud of our team that we were early enough in it to see it and to be a defining company in the industry. Intimately, I know their Locust customer base, and I can tell you that in my years of starting and building businesses, that I've never seen a better customer base as far as who's in it. You know, the the kind of companies that have bought. It's not my place to be sharing that, but. Some of it's public, you can see it on the website, but there's just a lot of really, really blue chip and really, really thought leading companies that are customers of Locus. There's a very low penetration of, of them, meaning that we might have two of their facilities, but we might only be doing you know four or 5% of their volume. So we can grow a lot within the customer base we have, and I don't think anybody can rival our customer base. So it took a while to find this one, Again, I said in supply chain, there are very, very few sort of parts of it where you can actually provide something that everybody can use. I think we did find it with Locus.
0: You have a good market presence. I I always see your product, whether it's uh, partners, partner events or Modex, or I even know a local company, Kenco. I don't know if you're familiar with Kenco. They're a 3PL in Chattanooga. I think they have Locus in their, Bruce, in their innovation lab, if I'm not mistaken. And it, that's where I've seen it. That's yeah, I've why heard i heard that name, yep. Yeah. yeah, I know it's a – that's why I say it's a good – I'm not a robot expert, but that's why I know kind of what you talked about. It's not XYZ, coordinate, XYZ coordinates like a, a Kiva. It's kind of free-flowing. And, and I've seen the machine, when you take a tour there, if you walk up to it, it'll stop. So it's not going to just run over people or, you know, create injuries. So that's the neat thing about it. And as you said, it goes to the location. It's almost like a, a light a movable pictolite. It it displays on the pad and tells you what to pick and you put it in the tote. So you're doing some good things there.
1: That's the thing we invented a lot. We have a lot of patents around navigation and user interaction. In order to navigate, it's one thing to just tell a robot to follow a line or follow a wire embedded in the floor like we used to do with uh, automatic guided vehicles. We still do, actually. But it's now... the robot actually sees like a human and it makes a judgment about whether or not it can fit through a particular space. And it reacts to real time events like if there's an obstacle like a human that, that appears in its vision, it will stop. It has some interesting characteristics in, in its ability to sort of slow down when things get crowded and find its way through and speed up when things are not crowded and you know, pick up some time. It has tremendous algorithms around clustering so that it will travel uh, with other robots and near people to try to limit uh, walking between robots. It also has the ability to make judgments about shortest path. Some of the things that I remember from my days in mathematics were really complex algorithms we used to try to solve things like the traveling salesman problem, which is how do you efficiently travel between you know n cities some you know six, ten twelve cities, and visit every city in the shortest path possible? You know those math problems are very complex and many of them are not solved, so you just use brute force in the computer to calculate as many paths as you can and pick the shortest one so we do lots of things like that, so it was always fun when we started thinking about the problems in the abstract and trying to figure out ways to. Make the computer work, make the robot work in real life. There was a huge distance between the day we just got the robot to work the first time and to have it work in a production environment 24-7, You know, deal with humans and, believe it or not, other robots. Other robots are the most complicated part of it. You have 200 robots in the space, and you have to avoid all of them all the time.
0: Well, that's something, you know, a completely different topic, but autonomous cars... Driverless automobiles, and that, what I read recently was, it's gonna, it's gonna happen, but it's not, it can't happen. You can't have driverless cars with people that are driving cars because the the interaction just won't work. Driverless cars are safe, drivers are not safe. So that's that's kind of the
1: story. <laughs> yeah, I think. I think that's right. I have a lot of debates around that, and you know, a lot of people disagree with me. And sometimes I think I might be, I'm afraid to be. Um, there was a guy named Ken Olson. who used to run Digital Equipment Corporation. And when Microsoft first showed up on the scene, he said, why would anyone need a computer on their desk? So, you know, I don't want to be that guy. But yes. I think that autonomous cars are going to be very hard for the reasons you suggest. And, you know, we have a robot that's 100 pounds and travels at walking speed. And if it bumps into you, it really doesn't hurt, even if it hits you full blast it's not gonna send you to the hospital. It's not gonna break your foot. It's not gonna do anything bad. But if, if I have a car that weighs 3,000, 4,000 pounds and it's traveling at 70 miles an hour, it can do a lot of damage. So the idea of getting from the lab out into the real world and dealing with the fact that you, know, you can get it to work most of the time, pretty reliably, that's just not good enough. And you know, we got our product out in the market well before anything was a hundred percent and we're not a hundred percent in anything yet. We're getting closer to a hundred percent, but there are collisions and there are, you know, things fall off the robot and, you know, there are, there are things that happen. Robot gets lost, just wanders off into the space. You know, we're trying to figure out every instance where that happens, but our world is much smaller and less complicated than the real world of driving cars and dealing with roads and stoplights and, you know, I just think about a flag man, how complicated it is just to deal with this person standing in the road about 300 yards in front of you, holding up his hand, telling you to stop, but waving the cars the other way through. And I think about just the complexity of the algorithm that you'd have to write to deal with that. And that happens to every one of us every single day. And, you know, the guys that are working in the lab, they're not thinking about that problem. That's like a downstream problem for them. They're still trying to figure out how to stay between the white lines. So you add all these things into the world of autonomous cars and realize just what you have to do to get from here to there, it is really going to take a long time, and it's really, really going to be hard programming.
0: Logistics is easy. I mean, it's – or warehousing. It's pretty basic processes. So if we, can't, if, we, if we can't get it right in warehousing, we can't get it right in anywhere else. If we can, I don't want to, I don't want to, hopefully this is not a trick question and maybe hopefully you have an answer for it, being a math person. But that quote that I talked about, five of the top 10 richest people in the world made their money in in supply chain. Do you have any examples from that or is that just something that you're, uh, that you kind of came up with? Well, I'm I'm thinking Jeff Jeff Bezos. I I don't know
1: if you. Jeff Bezos for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who runs Zara, his name is um, Amontio Ortega and then the Walton family. They're four of the top ten richest people in America.
0: Ah, uh-huh, that's right. I Walmart.
1: That. Walmart was all about logistics.
0: Yeah, transportation. That's right. That's interesting. Well, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of – I'll try to support your theory. I'm a big fan of uh, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett. And I don't know if you, if you follow his stock, but he's had a lot of acquisitions. I say a lot. He's had acquisitions over the past five years in supply chain companies. Bur- you know, Burlington, Northern, Santa Fe. Railroad. He's got yep. X- Extra Lease, which is a, a trailer company. Uh, Pilot Flying J, which is a it's a, it's a a gas station, but it caters to the truck drivers. So I know a lot of that's transportation, but when I, I talk to people about in my supply chain classes, that's just a great example right there. Of, of, he's probably the wealthiest person in the world, probably a smart person, and he's investing in supply chain companies. So
1: Yeah, he. I mean, you could give him a lot of credit for making money. In supply. I mean, it's really, like I said, it's a third of the global GMP and loosely speaking. And so you almost have to be in it if you want to be wealthy in some capacity. I mean, medical is the largest industry and there's a lot of people making a lot of money in medical. I don't know if anybody's in the top 10 richest people in the world in medical yet, but I mean, clearly it's a, it's a big opportunity. The thing is, you've got to understand how to create value in that industry. And that's non-trivial because the industry's full of smart people and I mean, think about my, my personal experience. I had to really suffer a lot, you know? Losing access to a robot that was completely my business prop, my whole value prop was, then I had to lose that to, to to really have the impetus to go and build Locus, which then became, you know, an industry. You know, people invented barcoding. Um, I'm not, And I'm, I don't think, McLean, I don't think any of those people really made a fortune. I just came up with the idea, you know. The guy who founded Symbol Technologies and owned all the patents on barcode reading, you know, he made a decent living, but I don't think he—I um, don't think he became a multi-billionaire.
0: So I have—I found another quote that you had, and I don't know if this is an idiosyncrasy or not. It Doesn't have a lot to do with supply chain, but you said you—you've saved every single boarding pass since 1979. Is that, <laughs> is that accurate, or do you still do that, or maybe I'm mistaken?
1: No, well, that's true. In fact, I. I have them right here in my office. So you have to understand that I was, when I was born and raised in Minneapolis, my dad flew all over the world, but I never got on a plane until I flew to Boston at the age of 15. I had never been on an airplane. And uh, I must've been to the airport to drop off my dad or pick him up with my mom probably, I don't know, hundred times, 200 times. So I was totally enamored by planes and flying. And so my first business trip, was to Alma, Michigan in 1979, where I was literally asked by my company to fly to the middle of Michigan to install a piece of software for a company. And I took that boarding pass and I stuck it in a file and just said, I'm gonna keep this. This is my first business trip. And i kept filling that file with every business trip I ever took. To be fair, it became much harder to collect boarding passes when we got into electronic boarding passes. So. I tried to keep the ones that I got, and I tried to print them out when I got them, but I'm sure I missed a few flights. But I have all of them in a file since 1979.
0: I'm along those lines. I don't. I haven't been tracking it since I first started, but what I've done lately is I, I travel a bit now, basically through Hartsfield, Atlanta. And I, I track the gates that I go in and out of. I've been doing that for about four or five years. It's just fun. It's, it's the engineering. <laughs> I like to see which gates I've gone. The most popular gates, the most popular terminals. But... I don't have to print anything out. It's more memory based. So I've got one more, (laughs) one more thing to uh, just, I could talk to you forever. This is, I'm like a kid in a candy store. I'm sure you have opinions on drones and everything else, but maybe that's for a different topic, different discussion. But Bruce, uh, as we wrap down, I always like to conclude with getting guest perspectives on the future of careers in supply chain management. So I've got a lot of different people that listen, whether they're students or professionals that want to transition into, into supply chain management. Do you have any suggestions or guidance on, on what people can do going into college or, or that are in college, what they should study, or somebody that just wants to get into this, this, uh, this interesting career?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously I would have some advice, uh, mostly from the, the mistakes I've made and scars on my back. But um, pay a lot of attention to the, to the sector and the company that you're working for and that you aspire to work for. Because in order to really, you want to be in a business where the wind is at your back. And in order for the wind to be at your back, you have to have a whole bunch of things in your favor. Uh, You need to have a big market that's growing fast. You need to have a product that people absolutely have to have. Not just something that they want to have, but something that they absolutely have to have. And if you can get with the leader in the sector, that's a huge advantage because leaders end up Getting all the value, either in the public markets or in the profit of the business. And uh, I would say um, try to find recurring revenue models. So if you're if you're selling something, try not to sell a thing that you get paid for, and then that's it. Try to sell something that's a service or can be it can be a thing, but is built out like a service. In the world of software, they call it software as a service where like Salesforce.com, you don't actually buy the product, you just pay by the seat. And so you pay a lot less, but over time, it might add up to be more than, but the most important thing about it is that it gives you a reliable revenue stream. So you don't have to worry about things like, um, what's the, are you going to grow next quarter? Because in these models, you're you're always going to grow and always look for like multiple dimensions in the growth not only growth in the sense of the number of customers you can sell to, but growth in the sense that the customers are going to buy more from you over time, each customer. So you can grow in in at least two dimensions that way. You can grow by getting, by having your customers grow and by getting more customers. And then the third thing is things that, you know, expand other products that you can sell to the same customers. So if you find a business that has those characteristics, then that's a good business. And, I think in supply chain there tends to be a lot of businesses that don't follow that for the reason that there are a lot of business, a lot of sectors that have low barriers to entry. So, you know, like consulting or automating warehouses or building out, designing, you know, doing the engineering around how to build a warehouse. Those yeah. models are very tough because it doesn't take anything to get in a business. You, it's like a lawyer, you just put up a single shingle, start a website have an office and a phone, and you can be in business. Um, But those generally don't, our business don't create a lot of value for you or your customers because everything's, I call it, we call it in our company elephant killing, right? You um, try to, you have to kill an elephant and then you have to eat it before it goes bad, and then you have to kill your next elephant before you starve to death. So it's either feast or famine. Those are bad, bad business models. And a lot of times people don't hear the harsh reality of it, this kind of goes back to my my conversation with Paul Goodrich that I had when he was telling me about Amazon. He basically gave me this lecture on how to build a valuable company and what makes one more valuable than another. And I remember thinking, "Huh, I'm glad he told me that." You know, if I had gone to see him and said, "Hey, Paul, I'd like to have you raise money. I'd like to sorry. I'd like to have you uh, invest in my company," he would have sort of said, Oh, thanks for coming, we'll get back to you and he never would have called me and told me those things. But since we were sitting on the plane for all those hours, he really gave me a lecture on what it takes to to have a good business. And I think that's where the younger you are when you learn that, the better off better career you're gonna have.
0: Well I liken that to being at the right place at the right time, but you also have to have the the mindset to be able to recognize what's happening, when it's happening. And I think that's that has a lot to do with leadership and characteristics of people like you have. So Kudos to you. Yeah, what you talked about was the subscription model. It seems like a lot of companies today, WMS, whatever, are chasing that subscription model. Does, does Locus, is that, is that your revenue model? Are you, are you robot as a service, or how do people buy that? Yeah, we
1: call it RAS, yep. Yep. Okay. Part of the whole game was, you know, again, we had uh, so much experience by the time we started Locus that we were able to kind of think about it properly from the very beginning, and the guy who runs it now, the CEO of Locus, is actually from the software-as-a-service world. That's where he made his living. And when the board was looking for a new CEO, they looked hard at, at that as you know, sort of a core requirement of any CEO we hired with that experience in setting up recurring revenue models. It seems sort of trivial to do, but it's complicated. And also, you have to be really religious about it. You can't just say, well, we'll mostly do robots as a service. And we'll, we'll sell it to our customer if they want to buy it in a lump sum. And you just have to say, you know, that's not how we do business because really, you can't just do it partially. You know, you have to do it one way or the other. And your business is evaluated on how you generate revenue. So if you make exceptions to your own rules, then people say, who are you? What are you? Thing is, you just have to follow a path and stay on it.
0: Oh, Bruce, excellent insights, much more than I even bargained for. Is there anything else before we say goodbye that you'd like to share? Or I'm sure you could go on for another hour or two.
1: No, I mean, yeah, I could go on forever, but (laughs) consistent with the idea that supply chain is boring, I don't want to subject your audience to that. Yeah, very Um, kind. But it is a... very nice that you do this and there are a lot of interesting folks in the industry there's a lot of really really great stories out there like i said it's a huge industry and um it's not very well known because the only time you hear about it is when things don't go right so that's true there's exceptions
0: uh, (laughs) got it but thank you chris Chris. yeah thank you again for investing time with me i appreciate it this concludes part two of the two-part discussion with bruce welty take a listen to part one to learn more about his career and success tips for starting a business. Supply Chain is Boring is part of the Supply Chain Now Network. We highlight historical events, companies, and people in supply chain management, and create a picture of where the industry is headed. Interested in learning more about supply chain technology startups, mergers, acquisitions, and how companies evolve? Take a listen to Tequila Sunrise, crafted by Greg White. Or check out This Week in Business History with Supply Chain Now's own Scott Luton to learn more about everyday things you may take for granted and pick up short stories you can use as general conversation starters. The Logistics with a Purpose series puts a spotlight on neat and interesting organizations who are working toward a greater cause. If you're interested in logistics, freight, and transportation, take a listen to the Logistics and Beyond series with the Adapt and Thrive Mindset Sherpa, Jamin Alvarez. And check out the newest program, Tech Talk, hosted by industry veteran and Atlanta's own, Corinne Bursa. Bursa will discuss all things digital supply chain. If interested in sponsoring this show or others on Supply Chain Now, send a note to chris at supplychainnow.com. And remember, supply chain is boring. I can tell you've done this before. I've, I've listened to at least three of podcasts that I've found already. So you are probably the most interviewed person that I've interviewed so far.
1: Well, I have had a lot of interviews, I guess, getting on 60 Minutes. Yeah, I saw that. And doing work with, <clears throat> doing work with Harvard Business School have both been helpful in getting my name out there.